Welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Sunbury Press publishes print, electronic, and audiobooks under a variety of imprints and categories available worldwide wherever books are sold. And now your host, the founder and CEO of Sunbury Press, Lawrence Knorr. We're at the Sunbury Press studio at the historic Christian Baker Farm near Boiling Springs, Pennsylvania. My guest today is Eugene Procknow. He's a former management consultant with a global consulting firm. After that, Gene established a second career as a writer and historian of the American Revolution and the early Republic. Since 2013, he has authored 30 scholarly articles for the prestigious peer-reviewed Journal of the American Revolution. Gene lives in Washington, D.C. with his wife and two adult sons. The book we're talking about today is called William Hunter, Finding Free Speech, A British Soldier's Son Who Became an Early American. William Hunter, the son of a Revolutionary War British soldier, witnessed the terrors of combat and capture and penned the only surviving revolutionary account written by a child of a British soldier. Remarkably, Hunter immigrated to America and became a gutsy Kentucky newspaper editor and a prominent politician, businessman, and community leader. Eugene Procknow, welcome. Thank you, Lawrence. I'm, I'm looking forward to sharing more about William Hunter's story with your listeners. Yeah, so, you know, I, I was really excited to get your manuscript and to begin working with you. And, of course, the first thing that turned me on to it was the topic of the American Revolution. So I have to ask you, what got you interested in the American Revolution? You know, it's interesting, um, Lawrence, I, my family had a house in Vermont, and uh, outside our window was a, a mountain called Lincoln Mountain. And from a young age, I always thought that mountain was named for Abraham Lincoln. You know, as Vermonters were really passionate about uh, passionate fighters uh, during the American, during the Civil War. However, I found out that that mountain was really named for Benjamin Lincoln, a Revolutionary War major general. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, Lincoln, uh, Benjamin Lincoln, commanded surrenders at the three largest surrenders of, of Saratoga, Charleston, and Yorktown. So what really intrigued me was finding out more about this Benjamin Lincoln. And that really started me on my quest to really um, uh, understand the revolution much better. That's interesting you bring him up. Uh, I thought the same thing when I stumbled upon Benjamin Lincoln. I thought, is this the great-grandfather of Abraham Lincoln? But I already knew that Abraham Lincoln's grandparents were from where I grew up, in Exeter Township, Pennsylvania. So I figured there's probably, if there's a connection to the general, it's very distant. And so when doing our book series, Graves of Our Founders, uh, I did the article or the chapter on gen the General Benjamin Lincoln and found he was buried in Massachusetts, I guess just outside of Boston. So I didn't know he had a Vermont connection. I actually forgot, forgot that till you mentioned it. Yes, uh, his uh, many of the soldiers under his uh, command uh, immigrated to Vermont uh, after the war uh, to, uh, uh, to settle the land there that was pretty much no man's land during the war. And so it was kind of open territory, and uh, about 70 of uh, his uh, former uh, soldiers uh, settled in some place called the Mad River Valley in Vermont. Um, and they named one end of the valley after Benjamin Lincoln and the other end of the valley after uh, General John Stark. And there's, yeah. so there's Stark Mountain at the other end of the valley. So it's a, uh, it's a piece of Americana, and as I kind of uh, learned about the family names and learned about the uh, – uh, the people in the valley, uh, they all they all had a Revolutionary War connection. So that really sparked my interest in, in learning more about the about the revolution. 
Now, if I remember Stark, I, I also visited what was supposed to be his grave, and I think it's in New Hampshire, if I'm not mistaken. But, yes, it's right outside of Manchester. Yeah, and what I remember about that story is they're not sure that that's his actual gravesite because he was buried somewhere nearby, and maybe there was some like flooding or something, and then he may or may not have been moved to the spot he's at now. I don't know if you know anything about that. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure it's it's there either. I uh, I don't know. I know the river has moved uh, several t- uh, times uh, since uh, it was dammed and uh, for manufacturing. And so uh, the, the mill dams and uh, waterways for the mills change things around a lot in that area. So it wouldn't surprise me if his body is still not there. Yeah, and it's unfortunately the story of maybe 10% or so of our founding fathers that were unsure about where they are today as, as far as their remains. So it's something that my co-authors and I have been researching for several years. So that that's sort of my recent interest in the American Revolution, and I've just always been interested in it uh, as a, as a mon- member of the Sons of the American Revolution as well. So, you know, we're talking about patriots, but now you've written this book about uh, someone who was a British soldier's son, and this is a very unusual uh, situation that you came upon. Maybe you can tell us that you came upon a journal or diary, and... You know, how did you come upon that, and how does that turn into a book? And so maybe maybe I have a bunch of questions. I know <laughs> you can't probably tell us in 30 minutes the whole story, but kind of give us a synopsis of the discovery of this information. Okay, certainly, Lawrence. Uh, actually, in a word, I can say serendipity. Um, you know, I, I had a chance encounter at a, a dinner party in my neighborhood here in Washington, D.C., um, the person sitting next to me, I didn't know uh, her. And so she asked me about my job and I said, I retired uh, from management consulting and now with research in the American Revolution. So she said something kind of remarkable to me at the time. She says, uh, we have this uh, diary that's been passed down from generation to generation in our family. It's uh, in our basement, but we really don't know what it is. Um, would you like to take a look at it? So I jumped at that opportunity. Oh, yeah. Um, and so I, I found a, a manuscript. It was a beautifully written manuscript. Um, it's about 35 pages and 12,000 words, but it was in tremendously uh, beautiful 18th century handwriting. However, looking at the document, there were some pretty obvious problems. Uh, first off, there was no name on the document, so I didn't know who the author was. And it was missing the first pages and um, missing some pages that were cut out and uh, in between. So uh, it became a very difficult thing to understand, but it was clear to me that it was a 18th century document. Um, I did know in the, in the document that the, uh, um, uh, the was written by a, 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 a male, a, a boy, um, and, uh, and that his accompanied his father, um, uh, on campaign, his father and mother on campaign during the American revolution, which was common back in the 18th century. And the, the father was clear that the uh, the father was uh, sergeant in the uh, 26th Regiment of Foot, because that was in the in the uh, article. Um, I could narrow it down that I knew it wasn't an officer because no families uh, accompanied officers back at that time. And also uh, the journal require, uh, describes the father doing some recruiting, and that was done by a non by done by non commissioned officers. So I knew it was probably a sergeant or a corporal. And so I 
uh, uh, looked at those and found that the, uh, and then looked at the battles that this 26 uh, regiment of foot was in and fit uh, John Hunter uh, as the description of the potential um, uh, sergeant. Um, and uh, so from there, I wasn't, wasn't 100% sure, so I had to work backwards. And I knew the journal's author became a printer. Yeah. So I researched printers in the United States and found there was a printer named William Hunter, so the same last name. Um, and so then I uh, uh, found an article, uh, a letter penned by William Hunter in the Kentucky archives and found that that was the same handwriting. And then I found a, a, a newspaper obituary, which fits the facts in the, in the diary. And um, and so that kind of made it conclusive that, that it was a William Hunter. And then I authenticated the diary by corroborating facts. So I'm I'm dead sure that this diary is is uh, authentic and it, it just has enough minor errors to be um, credible. So wow. what I realized is what you said is that this journal is the only surviving account written by a child of a British soldier during the revolution. Yes. And, it, you know. As someone, I mean, I'm working on a PhD in history. I know all about the importance of primary sources and also how scarce they are, especially from this period. I mean, you have a lot of the writings of the elites, but not so much people of the middle class or underclass and their experiences. You kind of have to pick that up from other sources. But to have a a diary written by someone who was the son of a British soldier is unique, at least at this point. Maybe there's another one out there. It just hasn't been discovered yet. Uh, quite remarkable. So this this journal that you found, was it written as more of a memoir later, or or is it clear that it's written throughout his life? You know, it, 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 it is definitely the, the, the copy of it that I have is... Um, or uh, it, it is was written after 1830 because it mentions a, a French king in um, uh, uh, in exile in the Edinburgh Holyrood Castle. So that happened uh, in, in, uh, in 1832. So uh, we, I know it's it's after that period of time it was written. Um, so it was not written contemporaneous. Though my guess is there had to be some contemporaneous. Um, uh, uh, notes because uh, it's it's written with a, a tremendous uh, recall of, of facts and details um, uh, that uh, basically they wouldn't be available to someone that didn't live through those facts and, and details uh, back in the um, uh, in the 18th century here. So um, it, it is it's a it's a journal. Um, it's uh, it, it covers the first 25 years of his life. Um, however, William Hunter lived to 86, so I had to actually uncover the facts of his subsequent life through other uh, primary sources. Yeah, I just wanted to ask you before we break. Um, so most Revolutionary War historians know about Joseph Plum Martin and his journal uh, from the Patriot side. How would you compare this to that, if you're familiar with it? Uh, you know, it, it's... Um, it's a it's different in that Joseph Plum Martin describes the the travails of a common soldier, and it's a um, it, it really shows the plight of the Continental Army and and uh, how poorly it was equipped and fed and paid. Um, whereas um, uh, this journal, William Hunter's journal, talks more about uh, 
what it's like for a, a child to experience, to watch his father go into combat. I mean, there's a scene in the journal which is just gripping in that his father's returning from combat in the Hudson Highlands, uh, Hudson River Valley area. And um, he knows his father was sent on um, uh, into battle there. And coming back, the first people returning were the dead and wounded in these wagons. And there's a scene in the journal about William Hunter going from wagon to wagon to see if his father was um, in one of those wagons. And to his relief, he got to the last wagon and didn't find his father. So it's 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 a different perspective, Lawrence, than you find in in a kind of a traditional. Here's what I did during the war kind of journal. It, it gives you a much more emotive sense of what it's like to observe a parent um, in peril. We've been talking to Eugene Procknow, William Hunter, finding free speech, a British soldier's son who became an early American. We'll be right back. The BookSpeak Network brings you history through biography. Sunbury Press Books founder and publisher Lawrence Knorr hosts this program that takes a look at pivotal figures in American history, including the famous, the infamous, and the not-so-well-known. Lawrence is joined by Joe Farrell and Joe Farley, authors of the Keystone Tombstone series of books, available at sunburypress.com. History through biography, here on the BookSpeak Network. I'm talking to Eugene Procknow, the author of William Hunter, Finding Free Speech, a British soldier's son who became an early American. Gene, uh, what an amazing story just to find the document. I imagine this being like a a television episode on forensic history, uh, you know, piecing this together. And but the story itself is also extremely fascinating. uh, William Hunter's life. So he doesn't find his dad in a wagon. You know, how does this how does this go on as far as the war goes? Uh, what happens next? Uh, you know, his father, uh, even though his father was not uh, uh, wounded or, or hurt in battle in any way, he uh, became unfit for duty. Uh, he had been campaigning in the United States for uh, uh, or became the United States for three years. Um, he he uh, was kind of worn out, what they called worn out back then. So he was sent back to um, uh to England on a recruiting mission uh, as the uh, British needed to reinforce their units in North America due to uh, uh, severe losses. Um, And so he was sent back on a recruiting mission. uh, And so William and his uh, family uh, sailed uh, 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 back to England. But unfortunately, on the way back, uh, uh, their ship was captured by a French privateer. Um, so this is the second time he was captured um, uh, in the war. And so he spent a year as a POW in Normandy, France. Um, and during this time, amazingly, um, uh, uh, William's mother uh, had um, dinner with Lafayette. And one of the things I was able to um, ascertain through Lafayette's papers is that actual dinner and the reason for it and all that type of thing. So it's pretty amazing uh, that William Hunter's life intersected with uh, so many um, uh, uh, so many famous people. What was the time frame for the Lafayette encounter? Uh, 1779, and uh, Lafayette was in uh, 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 Normandy, France, um, with the, the French was assembling an invasion force uh, at that point in time to invade uh, England. Um, and uh, with the help of the Spanish fleet. And so they were uh, assembling and training an army there. Uh, and William Hunter, was a uh, father, was a captive there. And uh, 
um, as it, as it is now, there are many Englishmen and women living in France, uh, and uh, there was a, a, a person that ran a uh, had a, a mansion there, and uh, because William Hunter's mother was uh, an expert on burns, uh, their child got burned, and that created a relationship, and they were so grateful they invited him to this gala dinner with uh, Lafayette. So were there any comments earlier in the journal where you might see loyalties being questioned or maybe well, yes, about there the, were. yeah yes i'm sorry yeah uh absolutely um you know the journal's written by a, a son of a british soldier but it's written from a perspective of an american uh they say positive things about the american uh, uh leaders uh they say positive things about uh uh, the Continental Army. Uh, so it is kind of unique that you could see where in the journal his loyalties changed to become a loyal American versus a, a very subject. And um, well, I guess they, you know, if he wrote this in the 1830s when he was an adult, an older adult, do you think he might have introduced some of those views at that point? Maybe his father didn't feel that way when he was a boy. You know, it, you know, part of it there was there was not as much anonymity. Um, uh, his, the 26th Regiment of Foot and his father, they had really very good relationships with the local population. This wasn't uh, like uh, in Boston or New York. And, and the local population actually liked the British soldiers because uh, they were they were in uh, um, uh, they were in New Jersey and um, and and then also in, in Montreal. And so the relationships between those soldiers and the uh, uh, the Americans were very, very good. Um, and so it, it was a different kind of situation than we think about in the history books of the Boston Massacre or the Battle of Golden Hill in New York, where their local population was at odds with the British Army. So it wasn't the anonymity that we kind of read about in the more prominent uh, locations. Oh, yeah, well, New Jersey, very heavily loyalist, I guess. Um, uh, yes, it was. Maybe they're around those communities more so than, you know, downtown uh, Boston, downtown Philadelphia. So um, when does he come back to the United States? Well, he he, um, uh, he, he spends his early 20s uh, in Britain. He becomes a uh, um, an apprentice printer. Uh, he decide, he um, uh, becomes a disciple of... Um, of Joseph Priestley and, uh, um, and and becoming an anti-monarchist or Republican in his view. And so he basically decides that he wanted to live in a country that was under a Republican rule. That By Republican, I don't mean uh, a party. I mean in terms of the form of government was a Republic form of government as opposed to the monarchy. So at, at the age 25, he just makes the decision to emigrate to the United States. And uh, he was very fortunate to leave England when he did, uh, because just after he left England, they shut down any transatlantic trade because of the, um, uh, the French Revolution and the wars associated between France and England around those wars. And so he kind of got out just in time uh, from one perspective. And the other perspective, he landed uh, uh, in Philadelphia uh, and just uh, around the time of the uh, uh, great um, epidemic, uh, yellow fever epidemic of 1793. 
which he fortunately was able to uh, avoid. But uh, uh, so he came to the United States uh, uh, with basically uh, uh, a couple of weeks worth of living uh, expenses in his pocket. Wow. And then I guess the whiskey rebellions around that time and a lot of westward movement. So he uh, he starts to head west. How does he end up in Kentucky? Yes. Well, it's he kind of end up start going west and west and west. And yeah. uh, part of it was that in Philadelphia, the market for printers was uh, pretty uh, 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 thick. There were a lot of lot of printers there. So uh, he moved west of Washington, uh, Pennsylvania first, uh, which was on the crossroads uh, to the Northwest Territories. And um, uh, he and um, uh uh, two partners founded the second newspaper west of the Alleghenies in in, um, in Pennsylvania, and as you said, it was the hotbed of the whiskey rebellion. Um, and then uh, he decided that uh, that paper uh, was a little difficult because one of the one of the uh, uh, editors was a uh, Federalist, and he was a, a Democratic Republican or uh, a Jeffersonian. And so uh, he did, they moved further west of Kentucky, which was uh, really a hotbed of um, uh, Democratic Republican supporters uh, to kind of more like minded people. And they moved first to Washington, uh, Kentucky, and then later to Frankfort, Kentucky. Um, and he founded two papers uh, in uh, newspapers in Kentucky. So about what year, what time frame were we talking about there? So this is after the War of 1812. Uh, well, no, he, he moves to Kentucky in 1798, ah, okay. um, and um, and then stays in, in Kentucky uh, for the for the next uh, uh, thirty some odd years. Um, uh, he he um, it's an interesting fact around the you mentioned the War of 1812. Uh, he was a major in the um, uh, uh, Kentucky militia at the outbreak of that war. However, he did resign his commission, and there was a lot of uh, uh, people that uh, felt that that showed he was disloyal to the United States. Mm. Uh, I don't believe that that's the case. He would have been about 45 at the time, which is about the top end of the age. I really believe that uh, his childhood experiences scarred him so much from war that he really, I don't think he was a per, he was he had very pacifist type leanings. Um, and uh, so I don't think he really wanted to fight, though I believe he was a very much of a loyal American. All right. I'm talking to Eugene Prock now. We'll be right back. Listen for the Brown Posey Press podcast available here on the BookSpeak Network. I'm Tori Gates, and my guests include fellow authors on our fiction imprint, but also other independent and self-published writers, poets, movers, and shakers in the literary world. Listen for current and previous shows here. The BookSpeak Network brings the story behind the stories and their creators here. I'm back with Eugene Procknow, the author of William Hunter, Finding Free Speech, A British Soldier's Son Who Becomes an Early American. We last left William Hunter out in Kentucky, a newspaperman. But we know that he ends up in D.C. and becomes more of a bureaucrat. Uh, maybe you could talk about that transition. What was his role? How did he get to Washington? Uh, well, William Hunter uh, became an ardent, as I mentioned, an ardent Jeffersonian. And um, unlike a lot of people in Kentucky he became, uh, that supported Henry Clay, he supported uh, Andrew Jackson in his uh, quest to become president. And so he um, met Andrew Jackson on several occasions, uh, became enamored with his political philosophy, 
believed him to be representative of the Western interest versus the Northern or Southern interests. And so he, he supported Andrew Jackson. During Andrew Jackson's run for the presidency, uh, William Hunter actually started a, a, a new newspaper in Louisville, Kentucky, with the express purpose of uh, aiding the, the Jackson campaign. And uh, when Jackson won, he recognized uh, Hunter's efforts and brought Hunter to Washington, uh, along with 70, 75 other um, newspaper editors, um, something that uh, you know, commonly called the spoil system. But mm -hmm. Andrew Jackson believed that the newspapers elected him because it was one of the first more mass uh, democratic elections in our in our country's history. Wait, wait, are you, are you saying, Eugene, that the president was trying to control the press? <laughs> yeah, I, there's not there's nothing uh, you know there's uh, much things change that they stay the same, uh, Lawrence. And if you think the press today is partisan, it was even more partisan back then. Um, you know, you could not make any money as being a uh, a middle of the road uh, publication. You were either you were either for John Quincy Adams or you were for Henry Jackson. You couldn't be for both. Yeah, a lot of the small-town newspapers were the such-and-such such Democrat or the such-and-such such Republican or, you know— That's exactly it, right. Very partisan. And, uh, they knew their true stripes. Uh, and the cart so. some of the cartoons in those days were brutal. <laughs> oh. Well, you know, and, and the other thing is that we talk about having um, uh, fact-checking. Well, they fact-checking there took two weeks. Yeah. So if you said something outrageous about John Quincy Adams, you know, that, you know, he had three eyes or something, you know, something really outrageous, people would believe that, because, uh, you know, they had no choice. But the two weeks later, after the election, then they find out they were wrong. So you, with, as closer and closer you got to the election, the more outrageous the uh, allegations were against the opponents because you couldn't fact check it in time. So he was there as a newspaper editor, not as a member of the administration, or what was his role in the administration? No, he, he ended up joining uh, the Department of, uh, of Treasury, Treasury Department, uh, and he became a, an auditor. And his job was to uh, assess the uh, accounts uh, of the um, uh, U.S. Navy. And, um, uh, you know, you think about that as um, um, – relatively benign kind of thing to do or backwater kind of thing to do. However, he found a lot of fraud and a lot of abuse. And that actually became cannon fodder for uh, Jackson's reelection campaign that he saved uh, the, the government and people a lot of money. Um, and uh, they had a great story in there about uh, um, Navy officers buying wood for a, uh, 80 cents a cord and selling to the gov government for a dollar cord. So, he put that that practice out of business. So he didn't uh, find any gold uh, toilet seats in any of those wooden chips. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's it's the same thing here where contractors, uh, you know, milking the uh, 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 the navy. So they definitely had the same kind of kind of thing. So sort of um, a proto military industrial complex. <laughs> it's you know those are modern words, but those words would fit the uh, the eighteen thirties and forties uh, in. Um, in Washington, um, you know, he, he goes on to to, to um, help Jackson's reelection campaign, uh, and then and then he survives in Washington um, through seven more presidents. Oh wow! Um, which is really kind of amazing. Uh, and uh, he worked uh, uh, really until the day he died at, at uh, age eighty six, and so he served almost all the way to um, 
of the Civil War. That's amazing. I know uh, just thinking about that that span, an incredible amount of time in, in early Washington. And when we chose the cover art, we chose a painting of early Washington, D.C., uh, the harbor. And you can just see how sparse it looked back then. You know, what would he have seen differently? Yeah, you live there now. How much different was that antebellum Washington, D.C. from today? Well, it's it's really, um, and, the, and the picture does it, it does it shows it really well. It was really a, a clump of buildings, um, and, then an, and then a huge expanse of forest, then another clump of buildings, another expanse of forest. And so it, it wasn't a really an integrated city. It was, uh, you know, you had the Capitol, you had the White House, you had Georgetown, and then in between was, um, you know, the... Uh, uh, forest paths, you know, small paths. It wasn't even streets. Um, so, I mean, he lived, uh, William Hunter lived five blocks from the Capitol and that was viewed a long ways. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, it looked like it lived in the suburbs you know, back then. So yeah. it, it was a completely different city. Um, uh, it was a wild city. Um, it was, uh, you know, there was cows and pigs and all that in the streets. Um, you know, it wasn't the Pennsylvania Avenue wasn't even paved back then so he lives 86 years he goes from the you know sort of the horse and carriage era to the trains and telegraphs by the times he's passing um how, how yes, would you summarize uh how would you summarize his life that's a lot of years how would you boil that down into a soundbite you know i think he, he's he's kind of a, a great experience a great um example of um, immigrants coming to the United States. I mean, you might not think of an Englishman as a uh, as an immigrant, but he was because he was English. And back then, that was a, a handicap for him. Um, and he, he really demonstrates somebody coming to the United States with a, a view of, of wanting to live in a democratic society and um, and contributing. Uh, he made a, a large set of contributions. He helped with the first um, uh, uh, educational uh, institutions in Kentucky, uh, both uh, secondary and, and primary. Um, he became a politician. He was elected to the Kentucky legislature. Uh, he helped build dams and roads and uh, was on the commission to build the, the state capitol. Um, and so he contributed a lot to his community. He was the trustee of the town for uh, over 10 years. Uh, so he was in, involved in town planning and town politics. Um, he built businesses. He was uh, in the hemp business for a, for a while. He had a bookstore. Uh, he was he was he was a he was a community builder and and someone that really typifies what it took to kind of build our our country. Uh, and so often we think about kind of the major figures. We don't think about someone like William Hunter, who there were had to be thousands of those to create the the country that we have today. Yeah, unless. Uh... You stumble upon a journal, or you uh, you know you're interested locally or regionally in a particular area, a particular person. These kinds of figures almost never are written about; they're forgotten. You know, uh, you go through cemeteries and you just see stones of you know people with some dates on it and a name, and that's about all you know about some of these people now. So, you have brought life again to William Hunter that through your connections with. Uh, that you piece together that have 
I think, just an amazing accomplishment as an historian. So I congratulate you for that. Okay. Thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun. It's uh, it's gotten in my blood, and I, I really hope that others will. This will inspire others to look at their family basements and find out other journals because I think there are probably other other uh, memoirs and diaries out there that uh, will provide more insight into our past. So we just have a couple minutes to go. Tell me a bit about the Journal of the American Revolution. Well, I, I got involved with writing for that journal, um, uh, about, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. And it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a, um, it, it's a high quality um, daily um, uh, uh, journal uh, that comes out. They publish a daily uh, edition each, uh, um, every, uh, every day. And it's a, uh, um, it's fascinating because the articles are short. They're like 10 or 15 minute reads, but they're all based on primary sources. Uh, they're peer reviewed and it's a, uh, uh, high, uh, high quality, uh, high interest kind of things you don't know about the revolution. So it, it what's great about it is that you, um, uh, you can, um, uh, you don't have to go through a huge book to, to really understand the, the revolution, you know, a few minutes each day. You, you really do get an overview of what it was like to be uh, in the revolution. Um, I've written for some other uh, 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 venues also, uh, and then I also uh, have a website that I um, maintain called researchingamericanrevolution.com, for which provides information to the students and uh, scholars and just people interested in revolution about various sources and both primary and secondary sources on a variety of uh, Revolutionary War topics. Oh, I love all the work you're doing. Uh, what book projects do you have ongoing? Any? Anything else you're working well, on you now? Well, you know, it's, <laughs> it's always dangerous, I guess, to ask an author right after they finish one. Uh, um, uh, but uh, I, I do have an, an idea on another one. Um, I've become very interested in a, a Revolutionary War major general by the name of Charles Lee, um, he has been viewed by historians as either a traitor or incompetent, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a just an undesirable character type person. Uh, and I'm not sure that any of those things are, are true yeah. uh, about him. Uh, he he, um, uh, he opposed Washington's strategy, and I think that's his main fault. Um, and he might not have. Uh, he might have had a lot of uh, uh, a lot of insights that, that would have helped um, the uh, Washington and others if he had a little bit more of a uh, open personality. I but, think he. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, I was going to say, yeah, Charles Lee's a fascinating figure, and uh, he may have been the most skilled general uh, at the time, but maybe the personality was a little too harsh, a little too much ego, perhaps. I don't know. But, I think you've got that well said. I think he he was definitely uh, uh, definitely skilled, and he had a good strategic insight. Yeah. But he, his his uh, his personality. Uh, he went some, one one historian said that uh, he loved dogs more than people. Uh, yeah. It, you know, a lot of the sources describe him as insubordinate in some ways, or possibly insubordinate. Um. Anyway, that's a whole another that's a whole another show. So. Write the book and we'll talk about it. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> okay, I, I will mention uh, he has a dubious ending to his life. I don't know if you're familiar with the fact that he's buried in Philadelphia. And uh, I've been to his grave. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we're thinking of putting a chapter for him. We couldn't put him in graves of our founders because 
there's such a negative view of him, and he's not really considered a founder of the United States by many. So he didn't sign anything, and he got in trouble as a general. So we did not include him on the list, but he may show up in our Keystone Tombstones series just as an interesting figure because it's quite a story. Yeah, he, he's the only general uh, that wrote extensively about democracy and republicanism and the potential for the United States to become independent. He, he has a his personal um, pamphlets are you know, they're not like known as like um, uh, Thomas Paine, but uh, they're they're really impressive for the intellectual depth. Interesting. Uh, something that you don't find in other generals. Well, Gene, we're out of time. Thanks for uh, joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Lawrence, for having me. I enjoyed talking about William Hunter, and uh, um, I, I hope this inspires some people to learn more about his life. All right. Thank you. We've been talking to Eugene Procknow, the author of William Hunter, Finding Free Speech, A British Soldier's Son Who Became an Early American. This has been the Sunbury Press Book Show. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Check out our website at www.sunburypress.com for our latest releases. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to receive special offers and discounts.